Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. We have all been in situations where our work is affected by difficult people, whether it's a tough boss, an uncooperative colleague, or even a tricky client. But despite the challenges, learning how to work with difficult people is crucial for any professional, especially for those of us in the HR space. That's why I'm excited to have Amy Gallo as our guest today. Amy is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review and the author of the best-selling book, Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. Amy is a renowned authority on workplace dynamics, and she's here to offer her insights on how we can build strong relationships with even the toughest of personalities. From understanding the different types of personality archetypes to developing strategies for managing those relationships, Amy has plenty of wisdom to share. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation and explore how to make working with difficult people a little easier. Amy, it's great to have you on the show and a bit of a role reversal because I know you 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 present the Women at Work podcast um, on HBR as well. But before we get into the conversation, could you please give listeners a brief introduction to yourself and your book, Getting Along? Sure. Thank you. Um, and yes, it's fun to be on this side of the mic, although I guess we're on the same side of the mic, but it's fun to be interviewed and not doing the interviewing. So I am, a, as you mentioned, an editor at Harvard Business Review. I have a new book out called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People, which focuses around eight archetypes of challenging co-workers and how to best work with them. Brilliant. Well, we're looking, going to look forward to diving into at least some of those archetypes in, a, in our conversation, Amy. I, I get, I'm, I'm fortunate, probably just like you, I get to interview lots of authors on, on the podcast. And I always find it really interesting to get to the story behind everyone's passion for their research topic. And I know that workplace conflict is something you've focused on for, for a number of years now. So, so I, I'm curious, what inspired you to start researching and writing about friction in the workplace? Yeah, you know, I could trace it back to to one meeting, actually. When I was in, I, we worked as a management consultant for a firm based in New York City that focused on the, the intersection between strategy and organization. And I remember being in this day-long meeting with a client where we were coming up with a strategy. They had just gone through a merger and we were laying out all of the specifics and they had all of the elements. It was a really smart strategy. They had incredibly talented people and I remember walking out of that meeting and thinking, that's not going to work. It's not, it's actually not going to happen. And, and they're not going to reach these goals they had set. And it was, had nothing to do with what we were talking about in terms of the content. It had everything to do with the way they were interacting with one another. And I, you know, as a management consultant, I had the, the privilege to be inside many of those sort of strategy meetings, to be inside many different types of organizations. And what I observed is that really what made or broke success was often about how people interacted with one another. And so if you have a board chair and a CEO who are at odds, it could torpedo even the best, well-executed strategy. And so I became really interested in how do we make sure that people are actually interacting in a way that's constructive and not 
which is, I think, a lot of where a lot of people go when they hear, oh, yeah, you know, conflict's bad for us. We need to get along, right, is not actually have no conflict. But how do we have healthy friction? How do we have disagreements where we surface ideas, innovations and differences and then work through them together? And that that was really I remember that I can still picture walking out of that meeting and thinking, wow, that went really well. And yet I'm not hopeful. And why is that? Right. And it was about it was about the friction in the room. It's a, I suppose it's a healthy friction, isn't it? Because if everyone's working towards the same end goal, that difference of ideas sometimes can help you get to the end goal quicker. But also, um, you know, many heads being better than one, you can actually discuss some of the the, the disagreements and, and and agree and compromise and move forward. But if, so that's healthy friction. Unhealthy friction is maybe when people aren't fo- focused on the end goals, they're maybe focused against the other individuals in the room. Perhaps is that, is that what you mean when it's w- maybe in this particular example? And obviously, I won't ask you to dig any deeper into it. <laughs> no, well, we is, know it's, is that yeah. is that what you sense that there was unhealthy friction there in that? Yeah, group? it w- it was unhealthy friction, but and and actually, a lot of the behavior I was seeing was passive aggressive. So people, there were people who were holding back, not saying what they truly thought. There were people who were trying to convey what they thought through indirect ways, right? Making snarky comments or even rolling their eyes. But then when they were asked directly, how do you feel about this? They would say, fine, feel okay about it, right? So it was it was that the, it, it was personal conflict, you know, relationship conflict, um, but it was also the lack of skills to actually surface ideas and talk them through. And and maybe again, I'm hypothesizing now, but maybe a lack of uh, psychological safety, for want of a better phrase, for people to feel that they could speak up. Maybe if they weren't the most senior people in the room, perhaps. That's right. Or that they knew, you know, this was someone. The strategy, this no, you know, particular element of the strategy was someone's baby, and so challenging that would start to feel personal. And even though challenging that would have been the right thing ultimately for the organization, for the company, for this leadership team, there was lots of emotion around what what am I allowed to say and what am I not, either because of the dynamics or the power dynamics or because of people's personal preferences. So, so you identified this, it's when the passion started. It, you know, before we move on to, the, to the, the next question, I'd love to hear, okay, how did you get from there to writing the book. I, I presume it's a journey, so I'll probably <laughs> yeah, ask, ask, yeah. ask you to do it briefly, but, but how did you get there to writing the book? I'll summarize it because it's many, many years, many, <laughs> many years. Um, so at, at that firm that I was working at, I, I started actually doing some ghostwriting for the partners of the firm who were writing some HBR articles. We together actually did a report on what we called the informal organization, which was the way that work actually gets done. So if you t- look at the org chart, yep, there's there's that sort of flow of power and flow of information. But then there was the real way that people actually get things done. So we did a report on that. That got the attention of a few reporters. I started collaborating a little bit more with the editors at, at HBR, and they asked me to start uh, working with them. And so I transitioned to a freelance writing career and was writing about all sorts of topics. And if you look at my articles, I've written hundreds of articles on on HBR.org, you know, they cover lots of different topics. But the thing that I kept gravitating toward over and over were these questions around conflict, difficult conversations. And I actually wrote a book in 2000 that came out in 2017, which was the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. 
when I wrote that book, I knew that it was a, you know, meant to be a straightforward, practical approach to handling conflict. But it, it also didn't get to the sort of personality issues that I was observing in most of the, or, you know, I was still doing some consulting work and, and speaking work based on the book, but I was noticing there's some personality issues, patterns of behavior that were coming up. So even with this straightforward, practical way to deal with conflict, we still needed to know how do we deal with these particular people and these patterns of behavior that we're seeing. And that led led to the book. So I think everyone listening to this episode today will have experienced some sort of conflict at work at one point or multiple points, very more likely. Um, from your research, Amy, you know, why can it be so hard for people to let go of conflict and to the point that it actually does affect their performance at work? Yeah, you know, it's funny, as someone who writes about this all the time, speaks about it, teaches on this topic, you know, you would think that I would have a conflict and I would say, oh, I know exactly what to do. I'll let go of it. But I, too, <laughs> have trouble letting go of it. And I just think it's our natural, you know, physiological response to something that feels like a threat, which is what truthfully conflict and difficult conversations feels like, is it's a threat to a sense of harmony, to our identity, maybe to our career. And when we feel threatened, we tend to have this stress response where we have cortisol rushing through our body. We go into what many people know as the fight or flight response, where we just don't make great choices. And our brains in those moments really react to protect ourselves. So our heart rate may go up, you know, anything that's sort of preparing for us to run or to to protect ourselves. The problem is when it's a minor issue, like not getting your way on a project plan, right? Running away doesn't help. Shutting down doesn't help. And what our brain does instead is actually tells a story about that, right? So, you know, David always gets his way. I never get my way. David's arrogant. I'm I'm humble, right? It starts sort of making meaning out of this negative response we're having. And because of negativity bias, which is our natural tendency to be drawn toward things that are negative versus positive, we really indulge ourselves. And, and indulge is too, almost has a too positive of, of a word, but we, we get deep into the negative aspects of these conflicts and really focus on that. You know, one of my favorite statistics I've seen recently is 80%. This was a survey, I think, of like 2,000 Americans about co-work, their co-workers, and 80% of them said they have a terrible co-worker. It's sort of buried in this report, you know, that was sort of the headline, was this other statistic that was 93% of people um, generally like their co-workers, right? And that is not an attention-grabbing headline, right? <laughs> it, but and yet it's my experience, right? If you ask me about the people I've worked with over the years, I would say the majority have been lovely, lovely people. Do I think more about the people who were not lovely and were, in fact, terrible? Absolutely. The same way I can tell you the negative comments in a performance review from 2001, right? But I could not tell you what the positive things that were said in that performance review. So we get, you know, stuck in what's negative. We really start to ruminate about that. Our brain doesn't help us because it's telling us these stories that tend to be polarizing, tend to be very negative. And so actually letting go of the conflict requires us to overcome all of that, which isn't easy to do because, again, our mind is telling us this is the truth. The truth is you never get your way. 
The truth is your coworker is arrogant. Your coworker is a pessimist. Or they're a know-it-all. And so you just sort of get stuck in that that version of the story, and it can be hard to detach um, from the conflict or the difficult conversation. Yeah, it's, it's funny. As you were talking there, Amy, I, I, I was sort of thinking back to my own experience and thinking, yeah, actually negative experiences just tend to resonate deeper within you, and maybe that's why you remember them. But you're right. It's like, you know, I could probably count on one hand, maybe two hands because of my age, but I could probably <laughs> count on one hand or two hands the number of people that I've genuinely not liked that I've worked with over my career. But, you know, there's hundreds of people, probably even more people that I've worked with that I really like. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, actually, isn't it? It's, just, it's a shame that we're wired to remember the it, negative it is. more than well, the positive. And it's meant to protect us, right? Like it's, we're, we're attuned to the negative because our brain, you know, we're as humans, we've evolved to scan for, for threats and then respond to those threats. It's kept us safe. And yet the problem is we have to recognize that's what's happening, right? You and I have a snarky email exchange. I have to remember, okay, my brain's going to tell me a story about how David's completely wrong and I'm completely right. And I should just write back to him and tell him everything he's ever done wrong, right? And then I have to go, okay, wait, hold on here. That's my brain protecting me. What's a more effective way of dealing with this? What else could be going on for David? What's going on for me? Am I tired? Am I not fed? Am I underslept? Right? Is that causing me to react more strongly to what's happening here? And what's my goal? Like, what do I actually want out of this email exchange? Right? Because oftentimes my goal, if I'm in that amygdala hijack, is to prove I'm right and prove you're wrong. And so that's not helpful, right? But what is what is it actually I need? Well, I need David to agree to this figure in the budget so that we can move forward. Or I need to agree him to agree that we're going to involve other people in this decision, whatever it is. And then it's like, okay, well, how do I achieve that goal? And and it's a, it's a much more measured response. It requires a lot of self-control, a lot of self-awareness, but ultimately it's what helps us make better decisions and have better relationships at work. In today's world of work, there is no new normal. With everything from where we work to what we need to work on constantly changing, it can be impossible to figure out how to retain, develop, deploy, and adapt your workforce. So where do you go to get the answers? Probably not your HCM or another static database. You need real-time, meaningful data and a way to act fast. That's where Gloat comes in. Gloat's workforce agility platform bridges the gap between getting the information you need to make decisions and taking action. You get workforce intelligence to help you adapt and evolve your workforce while unlocking the potential of your employees with a talent marketplace. Sound too good to be true? Gloat is working at scale with the world's leading employer brands like HSBC, Novartis and Nestle to help them cut costs, drive productivity increases increase innovation and speed to market, and to design a future-fit workforce. Find out how at gloat.com. That's G-L-O-A-T dot com. In your book, Getting Along, you share a lot of practical strategies to help readers navigate stressful situations in the workplace. You, as you've already highlighted, you identify eight archetypes of people 
uh, and that by understanding these different archetypes and their unique communication styles without putting people into a box of course you can you can use these to approach difficult conversations more effectively um you might want to just list the eight archetypes but but, but what and i'd love to go into all eight but i just don't think we're going to have the time but then maybe to pick three that you particularly find in the workplace and the tactics maybe listeners can can follow to work more effectively with with each of these archetypes sure yeah and and you said something you know without putting people in a box i do want to just note because I realize using these archetypes risks and encouraging people to use labels, right? And there is a temptation to go through. And when I list the archetypes, I'm sure you'll be thinking, oh, that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so. It's tempting to label them and dismiss them as a result, right? Like, oh, that passive aggressive peer. But really, these are meant to be diagnostic for you. They're not meant to be part of the discussion with your colleague. Well, you fall into the political operator archetype. They're really meant to help you find the specific advice you need because, you know, difficult people can't be lumped into one big category and give, you know, generic advice that's going to work in all cases. My One of my goals with the book is to really give people the specific advice that they need. So I'll list the archetypes. Insecure boss, pessimist, victim, which is a sort of a type of pessimist or flavor of pessimist, uh, passive aggressive peer, the know-it-all, the biased coworker, the tormentor, which is someone who is meant to be a mentor, um, but actually does the quite opposite, right? Sort yeah. of undermines you. I don't know how to say of them. <laughs> no, no, they're my least favorite, I'll be honest. Um, and then there's the political operator. So let's actually start with the biased coworker, because I think that's one I hear about a lot. And I think a lot of people are really struggle with how do I deal with someone who makes inappropriate comments or commits microaggressions toward me um, or, you know, clearly has some outdated beliefs about women or people of color. Um, you know, what do I do about that in, in the workplace? And, you know, a couple of tips I'll, I'll share is that, you know, one, I think there's a big hesitancy to speak up about that part. A lot of us feel it's uncomfortable or we don't want to shame the other person or we're not even sure that what we heard is is correct. But I think really weighing the costs and benefits of speaking up and staying silent. We don't often think about what are the risks of inaction? What's the risk of not not speaking up? You know, I think especially if you're in a, a position of power, you have to you have a responsibility to address these comments because it affects how people show up at work, whether it feels like a safe environment, whether people can bring their full selves to work. But then specifically when you hear those comments, and I would say this is true if you're on the receiving end, but even more so if you're observing, if you're a bystander, really ask questions that encourage that person to reflect on what they said and be clear and or to clear up any misunderstandings. So you might even say, huh, what did you mean by that comment? Or huh, I see that differently. Could you explain exactly uh, your intention by with saying that? Right, Just trying to get them to, to take a moment to, to reflect. And then always, because we, we know from research that we tend to hesitate when we are confronted with bias or an uncomfortable situation at work, it can be helpful to have a few phrases that you have in your back pocket, right? You know, something like, it's disrespectful to say X, right? Or that comment seems to be based on a stereotype, right? Anything, there's just sort of you can calmly call it out 
Um, you might even be as direct as to say, oh, I'd, I'd prefer you not say that around me again. All right. it, you know, and these can feel confrontational. I, I want to acknowledge that. But it's also helpful if you have those and can deliver them in a calm, direct way. It shows that person that you're not going to tolerate that behavior. What, what, would, what would the second one be? Let's let's go to the pessimist. This is one I hear a lot about of like, oh, I work with chicken little. Is that a, is actually is that a, a, a universal an international story? Chicken, chicken little, little, the film yeah. they made a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I, the I mean, sky is falling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know if that was like an American trope, but the chicken little, the person who's like always saying these negative things are happening. This will never work. We've tried that before, right? We all have worked with that person. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is they actually play a really important role, especially in a lot of organizations. Um, and I actually hear from a lot of my UK colleagues that this is very common in the UK, is that there's sort of this insistence on positivity. And, you know, some people will call it toxic positivity, right? Which is like, you know, everything has to just, oh, that'll work. That's great. Let's try it. Let's see. You know, and even if underneath it all, everyone's like, eh, I have some concerns. There might be some risks I'm, I'm, I'm worried about. They're just, uh, you know, doing you a favor by pointing out those risks, and and they're they're even going against the culture, the norm, the normative culture, which can be really challenging to do. That said, it can be really draining <laughs> to work with someone who is just constantly pointing out the negative. And I think you do want to take advantage of the skill, right? Like encourage them to point out the risks, but acknowledge that's what you're doing. It's like, oh, you're really good at pointing out the risks. Let us, let us know what you see here that we might be missing, right? Like you give them a role to play. Um, you also want to engage with their ideas. Like it can be really easy to dismiss them and to polarize and be like, I'm positive, they're negative. I'm an optimist, they're, they're a pessimist. But to engage with the ideas, right? You might even say something like, you know, there's part of me that agrees with you that this might not, not work. And another part of me that thinks it will. So let's tease out both perspectives, right? So that way it doesn't become a tug of war, but it becomes a collaboration to get to the best answer. Or, you know, and also I think it helps. You have to remember that pessimists think optimists are morons, right? They're just not seeing things clearly. They're just foolish. And so you don't want to immediately dismiss their ideas like, oh, God, you're always negative or, oh, like, of course you would think that, right? But to acknowledge, like, I can see why you're frustrated. I can see why you're feeling negatively about this. But and then you want to give them a little bit of agency. Do you think there's anything we can do to mitigate those concerns? Right. Or what what have we missed? What else? What do you want us to understand that that we haven't seen yet or that we haven't understood yet? You know, just sort of giving them some power can help not while not completely indulging in in the negativity that that they're sharing. Great. Like that one, Amy. So the, the third archetype? So this is the one I get asked about all the time. Do you actually want to guess which one of the ones I said? Because <laughs> it's the one I, I can guarantee whenever I'm doing a talk or a workshop, I can guarantee the first or second question will be about this archetype. Do you have a, do you have a guess? Is it the passive aggressive? Yes, absolutely. That's right. And And that's, I mean, I think people... It's incredibly frustrating to deal with. I've actually heard about heard it described as shadow boxing, right? You're you're trying to land something with this other person and they're just evading, evading. And and there are lots of reasons that people act passive aggressively and and 
most of the research indicates that none of them set out to actually be. No one went goes home and was like, "Wow, I was really passive aggressive at work today. That that worked out really well for me." Right? Instead, they think they're being petty, or it's not a safe space to say exactly what you think, or they're afraid of rejection or failure. So, you know, it can be really frustrating. But I, there are some tactics that that have shown to work, and and one is to try to engage with the underlying idea. So maybe they say something and it's wrapped in this snarky response or comment or, you know, they will waffle like they'll say they think this. But no, no. Once you start to sort of dig into it, they're like, no, no, I don't I don't really think that, even though you can tell they do. And if you can engage with the underlying message right, and saying, I think what I hear you saying is you don't think this will work unless we, you know, add more resources to the team. Right. Is, is that right? And then you can do what's called hypothesis testing, right? So you, you, you know, share what you think they're saying, what your hunch is, and then ask them, does that hold true? Now, sometimes the passive aggressive person will be like, no, that's not what I'm saying. No, 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 I, I didn't, you know, and you have to accept that at some point you may not actually get a real response from them. There's, they're, they're maybe genuinely afraid or unwilling to be straightforward but at least now you you've indicated to them that you're paying attention and you know anything you can do to make it feel safe for them so even saying things like i want to hear your true opinion i know it may not always be what i want to hear but i want to actually know what you think right um but that that can be really helpful and then one other tactic i'll share and i think this is true for any of, of the archetypes is is to try to set norms on your team for how you all are going to interact, right? So one of the classic passive aggressive moves is to agree to do something in a meeting that they clearly don't want to do and then they just never do it, right? So you might agree as a team, we will follow through on our commitments we make in a meeting. Or you might agree that silence in a meeting should not be interpreted as agreement, right? Or as assent. So that you actually, if people don't say anything. You're not assuming that they, they're on board, but you actually ask individually, right? Are we all on board? Yes, no, and allow people that moment to actually express what they what they think. And and that, again, passive aggressive is, it's one I get asked a lot about because I think people experience it a lot with their coworkers, but I think it's also one that's really, really hard to address. And, and all all of what I've just shared sometimes works and I'll be quite honest sometimes doesn't and and then you have to sort of try other tactics to to try to get them to to sort of show up say what they actually think and feel well with each of those three the the biased co-worker the pessimist and the passive aggressive if if what we've just what you've just guided us through Amy works seven times out of ten then that's probably better than where people are at the moment perhaps with that so so really good, and obviously in the book you dig in a lot deeper into into those three archetypes and obviously the other five that that, that we listed at the start as well. There's also tactics. There's a chapter if none of that works, right? So those three out of 10 times that it doesn't work, what do you do instead? And so, and I think that's that's really, I, I didn't want to, I've read too many books that promise solutions that don't actually, you're like, this doesn't work. And once you've taken it out of the book into the real world, out of the theoretical, and I really didn't want to do that with this book. I really wanted to give people you know, acknowledge that that some of this advice may not work in all circumstances, and there are hopefully other things you can do instead if that comes to be. Are there, are there certain archetypes that, that that clash more than others? 
certainly the insecure boss does not play well with most of these other archetypes, in particular um, the passive aggressive or or the know-it-all because it sort of triggers them to be more insecure. Um, certainly uh, the tormentor doesn't deal well with, with a know-it-all, someone who they feel might be um, threatening to them or the political operator. The know-it-all and the political operator would certainly butt heads. You know, it's it's there there's it's fun to sort of think about the different mixes of of how this all plays out. You know, but one of the things I've learned in both researching for the book but also in in talking to people um about the work is that the, every situation is truly unique, right? I, it's not like I hear about a coworker and I'm like, "Oh, that sounds like so and so's coworker." Like they're all genuinely unique cuz maybe the core pattern of behavior is pessimism. But they've got some victim mixed in, some passive aggressive mixed in. And that's why I really think of all of the tactics that I share as sort of a menu that you get to choose from. And you're going to try them out and you're going to experiment. You're going to see what works, what doesn't. And then try some more things. Because here's the other fun thing about dealing with difficult people is that sometimes a tactic works three times and then it stops working and you're like what like my favorite tactics no longer working so then you have to go back you know find something else okay well in this circumstance what if i try this right what if i try this and really have to put on that scientist mindset as you approach all of these interactions we hope you're enjoying this episode of the digital hr leaders podcast if you are looking to continue your learning journey head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Obviously, and I know you've been writing a, a, about it a lot in, in Harvard Business Review over the last three years now, obviously since the pandemic, we've been moving much more to a world of hybrid working, most organizations, a couple of outliers, of course. Um, I suppose the hypothesis I've got is that having effective conversations around conflict, perhaps, is, is perhaps harder than it was when, when we, we'd be face-to-face and you can read people's body language. It's, it's probably harder to read body language like this over over video what are your what are your thoughts on this and how does does this change maybe or or how does it change what we've spoken about so far or you know what what other considerations do we need to think about yeah i mean it's 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 the researchers who look at at conflict in remote versus in person certainly there's so many downsides as you said the lack of visual cues there's also the lack of context so like you show up in this square on the screen. I don't know what's going around you. I don't know if there's, you know, been a bit huge storm. I don't know if you have kids in the other room. Like I don't, you know, you you're missing the shared context. All of the above. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> right, that's right. Right. So, so you don't. I don't have that context. And the other thing, and I haven't seen much research on this. So this is really just my personal observation, and also from talking to people for for the book, which I wrote during the pandemic, which is that. These mediums in which we're interacting 
aren't really, they don't encourage empathy, right? Like I get on, I'm a little box on the screen, you're a little box on the screen. And the minute we're done, I just close the screen. Like I don't have to think about you <laughs> if I don't want to, right? And so I think there's there's a lot of downsides to to trying to have difficult conversations in this way. And one of the biggest is that we might just avoid it because it's a pain, right? Setting up a Zoom call, you know, trying to read your body language, trying to understand what's going on. Like, that's a lot. It's like a high hurdle to overcome, to just have a, a challenging conversation. And so I think a lot of us just sort of avoid it. But what can help, I think, is remembering that without that context, without the sort of nonverbal cues, and even like I, even the way you hear our voices on these mediums is not very clear, right? You're not picking up the same way you would if you were in, in person with them. So remember, you're, since you're missing all of that, is to make clear what your intention is, because that's we're tr- constantly trying to figure out, like, was David trying to trick me with that question? Is he, what is he, what, you know, does he actually care about this project? Right? We're all constantly trying to sort of sense that, is to state those intentions up front, right? So if you're going to have a difficult conversation over a Zoom or even by phone instead of in person, right? Is to say, you know, my intention with this conversation is to get us on the same page so that we can move forward, right? Or my intention with this conversation is to make sure we have a strong working relationship since we have to work so closely over the next six months, right? And just stating that sometimes can help lessen the work the other person's doing to try to sort out what your motivation is. Um, so that that's one thing. The other is try to choose a medium that's as high fidelity as possible. And I've actually found, I've heard other experts talk about this too, that a phone call is sometimes easier for a challenging conversation than Zoom, right? Because what the other one of the other awkward things about these video conversations is you're sort of looking each other in the eye the entire time, which is not how you interact with someone in person, especially when it's awkward. Like if you're if you and I were in a room together, we'd be looking at the ceiling, we'd be looking at our hands, we'd be right. But this zooms creates this situation where we're just like looking it feels very confrontational. And so a phone call, you can sort of pick up on different cues in their tone of voice and it takes some of the like pressure down. Um, so that's one of the things that I've been trying to do is like, oh, this is gonna be challenging. Hey, can I can I give you a call? Um, which Truthfully, it might be very countercultural for some, depending on your age, depending on the organization. But I, I always say, who cares? If it's countercultural, great. Like, you've emphasized how important this conversation is to you by choosing to do something that others maybe wouldn't. So I think that's, you know, thinking about the medium, stating your intention, and just remember you don't have the full context. I tell this story in the book of someone who thought their colleague was rolling their eyes at them on a Zoom call. And they were so mad and it led to this sort of big rift between them. And they later found out that he was just looking up at this clock that was right above his computer and he was trying to do it quickly so he didn't seem inattentive. And, you know, he didn't want to be late to pick up his kid from school. And that was that was the entire thing. He was not rolling his eyes. He was not mad. He was focused because he was worried and he was looking up. And so it looked like he was mad and it looked like he was rolling his eyes. And so just remember that you don't have the full context for what's going on. So Amy, we've talked a little bit about the biased uh, co-worker, but I guess we all, to a greater or lesser degree, have have biases, whether they're conscious or unconscious, that, that we may have towards certain people. And that influences the way that we perceive their behavior. 
um, and then the tactics that 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 we use to react to their behaviour. I'd love to hear your 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 thoughts on that. Yeah, and actually, it, you know, I know the the word the phrase difficult people is on the cover of my book, but it's something I feel a little uncomfortable with, to be honest, because I think oftentimes we label someone as difficult because they're different than us and because of our own biases. And so, you know, when I when my colleague shows up five minutes late to a meeting, I immediately start telling myself a story about how they don't care about this, you know, what we're covering. They um, are disrespectful, or maybe they're disorganized, right? You just, you immediately start going into what we call the fundamental attribution error, which is that we attribute their mistakes or missteps as part of who they are, as opposed to the circumstances of like, there was a lot of traffic, <laughs> on the, you know, in this meeting or they the last meeting they were in ran over, right? I'm immediately starting to assume something's wrong with you as opposed to giving you the benefit of the doubt of, of the circumstances. So that's one way. The other is that there's a bias called affinity bias, which is we're drawn to and prefer to usually spend time with people who are like us. That may, maybe they look like us, maybe they sound like us, maybe they have the same background as us. And so when someone isn't like us, again, we might quickly draw for that difficult label. And we have to really watch out for that um, because it's 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 not only unfair, but it's counterproductive. I mean, if we can only work with people who are like us, we're, we're going to really hold back ourselves and our career and our organizations. And, you know, the other bias that's really helpful, and, and this goes back to our conversation earlier about why we can't let conflict go is there's confirmation bias, which is we start as soon as I decide, you know, you're passive aggressive, I'm going to start collecting evidence for how true that is. Right. And so this is the other danger of of the labels and using these archetypes as labels is that we just start creating a story in which you are a jerk and I'm not. And you know, and, and I see it play out over and over because that's the lens on which I, I view it. So knowing those biases is helpful and really watching out, right? How could bias be playing a role here? If this person looked more like me or um, we had these things in common, would I think the same things about them, right? Would I Would I be assuming they were difficult if they were a white man versus a black woman, right? It's just important to sort of question yourself and your interpretation of their behavior through those through those biases, and and try to challenge yourself to see it more clearly, more fairly. Now, the majority of the listeners to to the, to our podcast are working in HR. That there are HR leaders, HR professionals, people analytics professionals in particular. You know, what advice could you give them? Given that HR is usually you've brought in to mediate if there is a conflict. You know, that's, that's a really bad conflict, admittedly, but. But you know, if we think about the learning programs and the coaching that that, that a lot of the time emanates from HR, um, what advice could you give to them to coach and guide managers and teams to overcome conflict and, and and build better relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think putting into practice a lot of what we've talked about so far, especially when someone comes to you and says, "Oh, I'm having a problem with so and so," right? You may be tempted to intervene, and I think doing so sometimes is required, or necessary but but more often than not you want people to solve problems themselves at their own as at the lowest level possible because it gives them the skills to do it again again acknowledging that conflict is a normal inevitable part of working with other human beings 
is important, right? Just so rather than saying, oh, gosh, you're having this conflict, you know, just normalize it, say, yeah, sometimes these things happen. All right, here's, you know, I think that's really important right from the start. The other is there's actually a, a four-step framework from my first book, The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict, that I think is a really good coaching tool. And I'll, I'll go through those quickly. You know, number one is encouraging the person to think about the other person. So the person they're having trouble with, ask them, well, what do you think could be going on for them? What do you What do you think they care most about? What would be a rational reason for their behavior or their reaction? And then the second step is to try to figure out, well, what's the conflict truly about? Because oftentimes we assume it's a personality clash or we just don't get along. But like, what's really underlying that issue? Is it that you don't agree on the goal of this project? Is it that you agree on the goal, but you don't agree on the process for how to accomplish it? Is there a power struggle happening, right? Can you really encourage the person to to see what is actually at stake? And it may be multiple things, but to thread those out will then help them figure out how to address it. And the third step is to think about what's your goal and ask them, well, what's your goal here? What do you want to achieve? And get them to be really clear. And, you know, and if they have a goal, like I want to show that I'm right and they're wrong, right? Most people won't admit that. But if they do say, okay, well, what else is your goal? And encourage them to think about a shared goal with the other person, because that that can really help put people on the same page. And then the fourth step is taking all of that, what you know about the other person and their motivation, what you're actually disagreeing about and what your goal is, and then deciding, okay, how to proceed. And sometimes that's sitting down and hashing it out. Sometimes that's letting it go, see what happens instead if you if you actually don't do anything. And, and sometimes that's, you know, handling it indirectly, you know, bringing in a, just a third person who is trusted by both of you, not to mediate, but to weigh in and maybe help sort of break up the the tug of war you've gotten yourself into. And, you know, I think that can, I use that tool for myself. Like I do that four-step framework when I'm encountering a conflict, but I think it's really useful for HR folks to use as a coaching tool as you're trying to get others to resolve their own conflicts. Really good advice, Amy. And, and, and certainly, you know, uh, I suggest that everyone, you know, gets gets the book getting along because I think it will definitely help workplace harmony and then lead to better outcomes as well. St- staying with HR, and, and this is the question we're asking everyone um, on this series of the, of the podcast. It, what do you think, you know, and, and I know that HBR features so much now on topics that are really, really resonant to, to, to HR as well. What do you think HR leaders need to be thinking about most in the next, say, 12 to 24 months? Well, you're going to laugh because I'm, I'm very biased about the, 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 what, what I think people should be concerned about. But I honestly think, I mean, the last few years and certainly the next 12, 24 months, it's going to there's going to be a lot of difficult conversations, whether that's about where we work, what hybrid work looks like, what flexibility we give people, whether that's about layoffs or economic uncertainty or budget cuts right? Or about DEI issues. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have been reaching out to me to say, we're struggling to have good conversations, productive conversations about equity and inclusion in our organization. How do we do that? And so I think really honing in on how do, what's the culture, what's the environment we want to create around having these difficult conversations? What are the skills that our people need, particularly our leaders, um, you know, because they're often going to set the tone for how these conversations go. I, to me, that's really the most 
important thing that that some that your listeners can really focus on right now is and it's a it's a fundamental skill that I think we sort of expect that most of us should know how to do, but it's amazing how little we're given or, you know, in terms of training or teaching, you know, around like how to have a fight, right? How do you actually have a conflict, move on, get through it? And and even if you both don't get what you need, continue to be in relationship with each other and, and to be, you know, to interact in, in positive ways. So for me, that's that's the big thing. There's, there's going to be a lot. I mean, it sounds like if we look forward and I think about what we are publishing in HBR, there's going to be a lot of turmoil, um, particularly around the economy and politics in, in the next year. And and how do you make sure that you yourself and, and the people who you support are equipped with the skills they need to navigate that? And things are moving so fast and, and they're likely they're not likely to slow down. I think, you know, if we think if we you know, if you add the pandemic to this economic uncertainty, obviously the, the the war in Ukraine, now there's wars elsewhere in the world. So maybe our my bias and I you know is that oh there's a war in Europe. Um so I think that of that being bigger than and, and elsewhere in the world. And that's not true. Of course it's not. Um but, but there's so much going on. And then when you add that to the the, the, the fourth industrial revolution as well, and organizations were already changing massively anyway, that's a, that's a lot for people to deal with, whether you're a leader, whether you're an HR professional, whether you're an employee. So I guess, as you said, that probably leads to more conflict. And if you think about, let's take it back to the, the very beginning where I talked about sort of why I got into this work. If you think about the way in which we're going to navigate those uncertainties or make decisions, it is all in conversation with others. And if we're not able to to get along and have constructive but challenging conversations, we're not going to get through it. And our teams aren't going to get through it. Our organizations aren't going to get through it. And so it's, you know, it's imperative that we we really build these skills and practice them and acknowledge they're hard. We're going to mess up. But then we sort of get up, get back and and do it again. Well, Amy, thank you so much for being um, a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've certainly learned a lot. And I'm, I'm sure people listening to this will as well. How can listeners um, find you on social media, stay in touch with you, find out more about getting along? Yeah. So you can go to my website. It's probably the the easiest place to find me, which is amyegallo.com. Um, you can buy my book there. You can sign up for my newsletter. You can find links to my articles. If you are interested in my writing for HBR, you can go to hbr.org and search my name. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's there's hundreds of articles there. But my book, Getting Along, is available almost anywhere you, you'd get books. And yeah, that I'd love to stay. I love to hear from people who've read it or interested in these topics. So I definitely encourage people to reach out and and stay in touch. Brilliant. And do you, do you are you frequent user of things like LinkedIn and and Twitter? Yep, I'm on LinkedIn. You can search for me there. Um, and then I'm on Twitter for the moment. We'll see where that goes. But um, I and my my handle on on though and Instagram too is Amy E Gallo. Well, Amy, thank you very much, I guess I said, for being a guest. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I look forward to hearing more about your work. Thank you so much, David. This has been really fun. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. And my thanks again to Amy Gallo for her candid advice. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. The more people this goes out to, the more organizations we can help add business value. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. Bye for now, and we hope to see you next week for another episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast.